Hello and welcome to a new episode of Lenashex Radio. This is actually the first episode of a new project. I am your host, Robbie, and today we have with me Lori. Hello. And Andra, first guest host. Hi. And this is Yoni, lurking here in the background, sitting this episode out. On today's episode, we'll be discussing with medical student and anti-fascist comrade, Dennis, about the SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 pandemic of 2020. In the first part of the discussion, Dennis will explain to us what a virus is and how it acts, what are the origins and characteristics of our current culprit, what we need to follow during a pandemic, and how SARS-CoV-2 acts when compared to other recent pandemics. SARS-CoV for 2002 and MERS-CoV for 2012. During the second part, we'll find out more about the current state of affairs, what groups are most vulnerable against COVID-19, and what we need to know about the main ways and methods of prevention. For the last part, we'll discuss the authoritarian response of various governments when faced with this crisis, and the role that the economic global policies played in amplifying this pandemic. The first part is a bit technical, so if you're interested in in the second part or third part, you can just jump forward to those. You can find timestamps for each of these in the description below. We'd really like to thank uh, Sofia Zadar for the intro music uh, to the podcast, and we will be using uh, her songs uh, from now on for for our intros, and not only. And then we'd like to thank Alice Palog for the wonderful logo. And in general, for uh, uh, the absolutely beautiful art uh, she did uh, for our other projects with uh, the group Right to the City, Dreptul Aurash in Romanian. And last but not least, uh, we'd like to thank Vlad Cucu for the art of this episode. Oh yeah, uh, actually forgot this, so like everybody on the internet, uh, we used some of the sounds and music from Kevin McLeod's Incompetech website. So yeah, all relevant links will be in the description. Listen to them. Loves. Children of the night. What music they Tell us a few things about yourself. What is your background? What do you study? And how do you identify politically, if any way? What are your main influences, like authors, books, etc.? I identify myself as a male cis white virus with an evil plan. And my evil plan is to shut down the economic system and by that strengthen authoritarian structures, lever out basic human rights and the constitution, drive people crazy through social isolation and show the people nonetheless that no matter the magnitude of the situation, most are still bound to work. Capital is my best friend and I help him to survive. My only enemy for that are humans themselves, so I hope that capital, or in other words, the personification of capital, capitalists will win. Uh, sorry for this anthropomorphizing of a virus <laughs> and making a bad joke out of it. <laughs> I'm actually Dennis and I study medicine. And well, I would identify as a leftist and an anti-fascist. So generally, I'm politically influenced by the Frankfurt School of Thought, which revolves around Adorno and Horkheimer, Benjamin, um, 
Marcuse. And I'm also politically influenced by Marx. So politically, I would identify as a Marxist, but not in the sense of that um, ideological and moral worldview which was propagated through history, basically, but rather as a necessary tool to apply critique on capitalism and to be always critical of social situations, critique of ideology and so on. In addition to that, philosophically, I have an internal interest in understanding our condition as humans or relationship to the world, to nature and history. And this I achieve mainly through Nietzsche and Hegel especially. So philosophically, I would identify with an analogy when Nietzsche basically described the relational context of the human being in his book, Das Spoke Zarathustra, when Zarathustra, that's the heroic figure in his book, after living an ascetic life in the mountains for years, he had that internal urge to go descend into the deep to the humans to deliver his wisdom to the people and basically confront them with their stupidity. So he arrives at the market and there the people are waiting for a rope dancer to appear and entertain them. So Zarathustra says that, quote, man is a rope stretched between the animal and the superman, a rope over an abyss. So I'm kind of that rope dancer dancing in between Nietzsche and Hegel just that I do not know who is on which side and what the rope is made of. And within the sphere of medicine, I'm interested in psychiatry and neurology and also microbiology and pathology. My God, I think I'm in full midlife crisis after this monologue. <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't been able to read like through two pages of Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, so... <laughs> you should. <laughs> Okay, so let's kick off the discussion. First of all, Dennis, can you tell us what a virus actually is? Yeah, sure. So <laughs> Zizek basically had an amusing description of a virus where he recently described in an interview with Russia Today that a virus is basically the most stupid thing one could imagine, something that just uh, blindly reproduces itself, uh, something meaningless. And technically, it's even worse than that because... A virus cannot even reproduce itself, but it has to be reproduced by cells, by living cells. And in our societal and historical context, it's not meaningless at all. So a virus is an infectious obligate intracellular parasite. Infectious basically meaning that it spreads from host to host. A host might be a human being, it might be any animal, it might be plants or even bacteria. Infectious spread also refers to a jump from one host, let it be animal, to human, for example. That would be a zoonotic infectious disease. Obligate intracellular parasite basically refers to the fact that the virus itself can only survive within a host cell and depends on it for its replication and metabolic processes. Replication literally meaning that it multiplies within the cells. These viruses can come in different sizes. So there's viruses that are that small that around mm, 500 million of them could fit on the head of a pin, for example. Viruses come in different shapes. They might be helical, some are hexagonal, they can be round, and some might even look like a robot spider. That's the case for bacteriophages, viruses that infect bacteria. You should definitely take a look at Google images for bacteriophages because they really look alien and it's uh, fascinating to see them. Generally, viruses can basically infect all living beings, bacteria, plants, animals and humans. And we as humans regularly eat and breed billions of virus particles. And we do not get infected because most viruses are particular for binding to a certain area in the body. So they are very specific. 
an interesting fact is that the biomass of bacterial viruses that live in the oceans and seas, so bacteriophages, exceeds the biomass of elephants by more than 1,000-fold. And if you align all the bacterial viruses from head to tail in line, the length would reach 100 million light years. So <laughs> I cannot even imagine what that means. Uh, maybe Robbie can tell us what 100 million light years are. <laughs> well, the Earth's sun distance is eight light minutes. So yeah. you need to multiply that by how many minutes in a year and then by another 100 million. So quite a lot. It's un unimaginable. So uh, given that magnitude, uh, viruses also have beneficial functions in our ecosystem. I will not go into that, but one example might be that uh, a specific virus helps a plant not getting infected by fungi. Now, what do these viruses consist of? So these viruses contain nucleic acids, either DNA or RNA. That's basically their genetic code that determines all the characteristics of a living being. Almost every cell in our body has in it DNA. Just that our cells are more complex than viral cells. So our cells are living because they can produce heat. They can produce structural elements of the cell, such as for the membrane. They can produce proteins, which a viral cannot do. The interesting fact that we should not forget is that a considerable amount of our own genome, when I say genome, I mean our genetic material, basically, has viral DNA in it which basically was implemented through evolution and remained there. So I can imagine that viruses also played an important role in our evolution. So again, these viruses have either DNA or RNA, so genetic material that they cannot use on their own. They are dependent on another cell to create the proteins and enzymes they need. In order for that to be possible, the DNA of viruses have the same building blocks as our own cells. So they contain nitrogenous bases, uh, that's adenine, guanine, cytosine, thymine, a sugar and phosphate. That's the fact why our own cells, human cells, animal cells, plant cells, which are all dependent on DNA, can read viral DNA. It's the same building blocks for viruses as is for humans. And if you basically extract the DNA and sequence it in a laboratory, one will end up with a sequence, a code that is composed of letters, namely those nitrogenous bases. So for example, A, G, C, T, C, T, T, G, A, C, C, G, T, for example. These viruses, they also have a capsid. That's basically a protein code that is very durable. So that makes them resistant to temperature variations, changes in pH, uh, drying and detergents. And this structure encloses the genome. So the DNA or RNA, as I said. And it acts like a protective coating. It's basically a brick wall. But some viruses might have an envelope that's basically a lipid membrane that surrounds that virus and that contains proteins and lipids. These envelopes are readily disrupted by drying and such conditions as acidic conditions and detergents and solvents such as ethanol. This envelope is not as durable as the capsid. So these enveloped viruses generally must remain wet and are transmitted through fluids and respiratory droplets, basically mucus from the respiratory tract that contains the virus and is excreted outwards to the nose and mouth, um, blood and also tissue. And SARS-CoV-2 is such an enveloped virus. That's why detergents and ethanol might help in destroying the virus. But we should be aware here because those respiratory droplets, so again, that mucus from the respiratory tract that comes out while sneezing or even talking, 
and in which the virus spreads might help that virus to survive the ethanol because it acts as a protective cover. And so uh, it's best to wash your hands properly with soap. And uh, as I told you, viruses are dependent on a living host cell in order to multiply. They reach this host cell by entering into our body. Now, how do they enter these cells and what happens afterwards? So first of all, they need to attach to a specific cell. And in case of SARS-CoV-2, for example, they attach specifically to cells within the respiratory tract only. And these cells have specific receptors to which the virus adapted to. Generally, viruses are specific to certain areas, to certain cells with specific receptors in the body. And upon binding on that specific receptor, the virus is able to penetrate into the specific host cell. And for this to happen, those viruses have specific enzymes which make the penetration possible. When they penetrate it into the cell, the viruses uncoat themselves. So they lose their envelope and they release their genetic information into the cell. The specific enzymes in our body that read our DNA in order to produce proteins or in order to replicate and so on, they are also able to read the viral genetic information and accordingly produce viral proteins and components and so forth. That's called viral replication. An interesting information here is that the HI virus that causes AIDS uh, pertains to the class of retroviruses. And these retroviruses have a specific cutting enzyme that can cut open our own DNA in order to insert the viral genetic information into our DNA, which uh, then can be read by the enzymes that can read genetic information, and uh, then the parts that are written on that code are produced within our cell. After those viral proteins are produced, or viral components are produced, they get assembled and then the virus is released. Now, the result of this multiplication of the virus oftenly is the death of the specific cells they infected. So disease or cell damage can either be caused directly by the virus due to multiplication and due to the steps that happen in between the multiplication, or it is due to the bodily response, the uh, immune response that is elicited by the infection, by the infected cells. But this obviously is overly simplified, sort of a scheme. What actually happens is much more complex, and usually it's it's a combination of both. So disease is caused by the direct effects of the virus and the immune response. May I jump in with one uh, small question out of pure curiosity? You mentioned that a virus needs a living cell. Mm -hmm. So I do have a question regarding the fact that viruses can linger in air or on certain surfaces, mm -hmm. although they don't come in contact with a living cell. How is that thing possible? That would be quite interesting for me to know. Yes, that's, that's an interesting question because that's a kind of ambivalence for a virus because one, we say it's a particle and the other moment we can say it's also living at the same time. So it's dead and living at the same time. So as a particle, it is not doing anything. It's just there. It's just existing. It's uh, just an object, basically, in a respiratory droplet. Now, if that virus enters that areas to which it can bind to specific cells, it binds to a receptor and there enters the cell. And within the cell, you call that cell an infected cell then, a virally infected cell. 
So then the virus is living basically because it has this DNA and uh, all of this is possible because it has this, this capsid. So all the viruses have, have this capsid and due to this capsid, um, they survive in the outer environment. Which is a coating, right? Exactly. It's a protective coating. And that's how also bacteria, for example, some bacteria are, are very durable because they have also such a protective coating. It's basically a layer of carotene and that's how, how they are really durable. Okay, so let's jump into our current predicament. What is SARS-CoV-2 and what is COVID-19? Maybe tell us a bit about how such a virus emerges and how this particular virus is related to other recent pandemics like SARS and MERS and maybe others. So we know that there is seven coronaviruses that are capable of infecting humans. SARS-CoV-2 is the seventh. Only three of them are Uh, or were relevant for severe human disease. And there is also other coronaviruses out there that are rather common that cause the common cold. So if you have a runny nose, for example, uh, that might as well be a coronavirus, but not SARS-CoV-2. Now, generally, coronaviruses are found in any mammal or bird. SARS-like coronaviruses are found especially within bats. But the intermediate hosts are not known. So generally, the population of coronavirus uh, lives within bats, but they could also be transmitted to intermediate hosts. And uh, through that intermediate hosts, they could jump to us. But nobody really knows how those coronaviruses maintain themselves in human populations. They do not undergo rapid antigenic variation. That basically means that there is not quite a lot of mutations going on. Whereas, for example, the influenza virus, so the flu virus, changes every year. That's why we are susceptible of getting sick every year, because influenza changes its antigenic components, components that are activating our immune system. That's why vaccines change yearly also. And the hypothesis for coronaviruses is that they elicit a transient immune response that wanes quickly and then you can get reinfected, where a second infection is supposed to be milder. And maybe also something is wrong with the memory response of the immune system. So the immune system uh, basically can build up a memory function towards uh, specific antigens. Or the infection might be confined only to the respiratory mucosa. And there it elicits a local inflammatory response and only a mucosal immune response. Because within your mucous tissue in the lungs, you also have some immune cells that can locally act. And that's one of the theories how they could maintain themselves in human populations. Let's talk a little bit about the SARS-CoV, MERS-CoV and SARS-CoV-2. So SARS-CoV was found in 2002 and the name says what it does, it's severe acute respiratory syndrome. Then the MERS virus was, uh, I think the first infection occurred in 2012, and that's the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus. And now in 2019, the SARS-CoV-2. Now, SARS-CoV from 2002, there were confirmed cases of a number of about 8,098 and 774 confirmed deaths, and 26 countries were affected. The case fatality rate was about 10%. So that's basically the percentage of people that died due to SARS-CoV. And the disease severity had a wide spectrum that was from uh, a runny nose to uh, fever to muscle age and uh, coughing. And then as a complication, pneumonia and acute respiratory distress syndrome. 
and I, I want to emphasize something here or um, explain something. So, um, our lungs, the tissue of our lungs is basically composed of alveoli. These are little hollow cavities found within the lung in which gas exchange takes place. Gas exchange basically meaning that oxygen enters the lung and then it goes into these alveoli. You can imagine small balloons, millions of them, and on the surface of that balloons, blood vessels are dispersed. We call them capillaries. And usually oxygen enters through that surface, that membrane of that balloon, of that alveoli, and enters the blood vessels. Now, if you have acute respiratory distress syndrome, then this membrane, due to inflammatory process, so that surface of the balloon thickens and uh, oxygen cannot pass through that thickened wall anymore. So that would lead to a decrease in oxygen within the blood of an organism so that organs cannot be supplied anymore with enough oxygen. And uh, this leads to multi-organ failure. That's how most of the people died within those SARS-CoV, MERS-CoV and SARS-CoV-2 diseases, uh, infections. SARS-CoV, the last reported case was in 2004, and we assume that uh, the animal reservoirs, so the animals in which that viruses resided, were bats, civet cats and raccoon dogs. For MERS-CoV-2, so the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus from 2012, there were around 2,495 confirmed cases and 858 uh, confirmed deaths and 27 countries were affected. And the case fatality rate was at around 35%, which is really high. And pneumonia was a complication again. And then again, uh, this steps of acute respiratory distress syndrome of the person and multi-organ failure if the person died. So the disease severity had also a wide clinical spectrum, again, from coughing, fever, runny nose, and so forth, to, to actually dying. And animal reservoir for MERS-CoV from 2012 were dromedary camels. And the transmission took place through saliva, feces, urine, also milk and meat. So these are zoonotic diseases that spilled over from animals, so bats, civet cats, raccoon dogs, or camels, to the human. Now, the interesting question is, why did the SARS and MERS outbreak burn itself out? Why did it stop? And why doesn't it stop for SARS-CoV-2? For the SARS outbreak in 2003, that's my example, there were three drivers for that. First of all, we had a known animal reservoir. We knew it was civet and raccoon dogs that harbored that virus and through which the zoonotic spread took place. So it was transmitted to people from dead animals in open markets so that authorities closed that market and effectively blocked the transmission chain. Now, the second driver was actually hospitals, which acted as amplification centers. So patients basically infected healthcare workers and vice versa because they did not really know about the infections. So safety measures were implemented and here again, the transmission chain could be blocked. And the most important thing was that SARS-CoV from 2002 was transmitted 24 to 36 hours after you developed clinical disease. So only after symptoms appeared, the transmission could take place. So the transmission could actually be stopped when people were quarantined in time. And for SARS-CoV-2, the infectivity already starts before the symptoms appear. So when blocking all of these three transmission pathways, the R0, so that's the basic reproduction number, meaning the number of people infected by one infective person went under one. So the virus went extinct. And by the way, for, for SARS-CoV-2, that basic reproduction number is approximated to be around 2.5 to 3. So 2.5 to 3 persons get infected by one person. 
while for the flow it's around one point and a bit right it's uh, around 1.5 to 2 i think yeah mm -hmm. and based on the virus genome sequencing results it is suspected that bats are the natural host of SARS-CoV-2 origin because the genome of SARS-CoV-2, so again, the genetic material that was sequenced and DNA was extracted, sequenced, and then we had that code, uh, was 96.2% identical to coronaviruses found within bats, a bat cough red G13 viruses, they are named. So SARS-CoV-2 might be transmitted from bats via an unknown intermediate hosts to infect humans. But... And it's important to emphasize that, that there is no evidence until now that the origin of SARS-CoV-2 was actually from that seafood market in Wuhan. It could have likely been caused by a person living in rural China coming in contact with a bat who then went to Wuhan and started the outbreak. The interesting fact here also, and I want to mention that, is that as you have such a new emerging virus that has a new receptor binding interface, um, there is a potential for new animal reservoirs a potential transmission now from humans back to animals. And this actually has to be researched about, because this would mean that it's a potential pathway for the virus to re-emerge later on. So to traject this a little bit, so basically the first pathway was from animals to humans in China, in Wuhan, then it circled around the globe, and the main reservoir is presumably humans now. And we can then infect uh, animals in our environment or potentially infect them. Again, th this has to be researched about. It's just something one could think about. And these could then go back into the bats and then a recombination of genetic material could go on and mutation-driven uh, selection can occur. And this could lead to new variants that come out uh, again in the future. And to your second part of the question, if we talk about any relation here in regard to prior uh, viruses that emerged, then genetically we can say that SARS-CoV-2 shares around 79.5 identity to, to SARS-CoV from 2002. But this does not imply anything clinically, neither does this uh, does it on, on any other level. I would be interested to know if animals are also affected by it. I know that SARS-CoV-2 COV-2 is not that well studied since it is quite new, but as far as we know about SARS-CoV and MERS-CoV, were animals also affected by the virus or are they just carriers? And how do we explain or did epidemiologists and virusologists try to explain why the human body seems to have various responses to the virus? If I understood correctly, some people have very mild symptoms or no symptoms at all, while others are highly affected. Have SARS-CoV and MERS-CoV also acted like this and has this been studied? So you already partially answered that question and that is that this is a newly emerged virus. So there is a lot of research going on right now and everything that one might answer or could answer is based on assumptions generally. So I'm not sure how it is with domestic animals. I cannot give you an answer to that, but I'm sure there is an intermediate host for SARS-CoV-2 or there might be an intermediate host for SARS-CoV-2, such as pangolins, for example, or other animals. It is quite possible that an intermediate host as an animal is found and that these animals are not affected by the infections, that they are just carriers. That's also an interesting fact for bats because bats are the most plenty mammal out there and they harbor a lot of viruses and uh, these bats often or most of the times are not affected by those infections. They are just carriers. 
So there are a few numbers which are important to characterize the evolution and the spread of a virus. We've already talked a bit about mortality rates, about spread rates, which is how many people someone who is infected infects. Let's talk a bit about the evolution of a disease, how many cases become chronic, let's say in comparison with SARS-CoV and with MERS-CoV, and about the hospitalization rates, if you know. Also, just to remind everyone, so COVID-19 is the disease, SARS-CoV-2 is the virus. Also, SARS-CoV was the virus, SARS was the disease. MERS-CoV is the virus, MERS is the disease. Exactly. So I, I think it would be easiest to kind of compare this to the flu virus, to influenza, and to point out some similarities and uh, differences here. Because I hear that notion and commentaries on social media that influenza also causes a lot of deaths yearly and uh, much more people are affected by it. And uh, it's true that it causes death, but there are certain factors that ease the whole flu situation. Obviously, both are viruses and both, so the flu virus, influenza and SARS-CoV-2 cause mostly respiratory disease. So that's also true for SARS-CoV from 2002 and MERS-CoV from 2012. Most commonly occurring symptoms that they share are fever and cough. And they also spread in a similar way through respiratory droplets. As I said, these are mucus droplets through sneezing or talking that come out of the nose or mouth and they harbor virus particles in them, millions of them even. And these droplets get either directly inhaled through the air by standing next to a person within the radius of one meter, or they settle down on a surface and then this surface is touched and the hands are then rubbed on mouth, eyes and nose. And now to the important differences. Obviously, I said they are viruses, but in case of influenza and SARS-CoV-2, they pertain to different families with totally different ways of infecting a cell and with totally different extent of disease. Influenza, for example, has a short incubation time. Incubation time basically meaning the time from the moment of infection uh, to the first symptom. And for influenza, that's two to three days. For corona, the average is around five days, but it ranges from two to 14 days. And now to uh, particularly your question about the course of the disease. So COVID-19, again, the disease, until now what statistical data concluded up to now, 80% are mild cases. So they have an uncomplicated course without breathing difficulties that lasts around one to two weeks. So runny nose, um, itching in the back of your throat, maybe a little bit of fever, uh, muscle ache, it's all possible. 15% of the cases are severe and uh, here symptoms at onset might appear as mild, but around after five to seven days, there is a sudden deterioration Uh, with difficulty breathing and hypoxia. Hypoxia basically meaning that there is not enough oxygen within your blood. And this lasts around three to six weeks. And 5% of COVID-19 cases are critical with the possibility of death. So again, they develop pneumonia, then it, it gets complicated as an acute respiratory distress syndrome, and then multi-organ failure. That's generally the course of death. And that lasts around three to six weeks. So generally, the course of disease for SARS-CoV-2 is longer than influenza. Usually, 
influenza begins more rapidly and the people that recover tend to get better within about one week and mostly without sudden deterioration. You also asked about the mortality rate. This is yet to be analyzed and uh, there is no definitive mortality rate established yet. But from what I have read and from numbers I came across, for COVID-19, we can generally say that there is a mortality rate of about 2%. But we cannot uh, really statistically determine that number accurately right now because there is a lot of undiagnosed cases and so forth, which for the mortality rate is even good because if the undiagnosed cases would be diagnosed and the people would die in the same numbers, then the mortality rate sinks, obviously. So we can say that from the age of 50 onwards, the mortality rate rises harshly. The age group of 80 plus, for example, has a mortality rate of around 9.3%. Persons within the age of 70 to 79, around 5.1%. Whereas the flu annually kills around 1 in 1,000 people. So that's around 0.1%. So that basically means that COVID-19 is 20 times more likely to cause death. And the highest concern with COVID-19 is that there is so many people likely to get sick to that point that they are hospitalized, that if it happens at once, the healthcare system basically will shut down. And around 10 to 15 percent of the people need hospitalization with COVID-19, whereas only 2 percent need hospitalization for influenza. It's important to remember here that just because of COVID-19, that does not imply or does not mean that all other infectious diseases, such as the flu, are removed. So it's an addition right now. We already talked about the reproduction number, I think. So again, for COVID-19, it's around 2.5 to 3. So the spread is extensive. So around 2.5 to 3 people get infected by one person. For influenza, that number is around 1.6 to 2. And there is also evidence of super spreaders in COVID-19, where cases have been reported that one person infected 13 persons at once, and that's not regularly seen with influenza. One important last point I want to emphasize is that for influenza, first and foremost, a certain default immunity is given for any strain of influenza, to that degree that it's not deadly anymore. So prior immunization processes also affect following infections, so that a certain degree of immunity is given at any point. Because parts of the virus, even though it mutates and changes every year, when you got infected once, also in childhood, for example, that makes the infection less worse. And every year there is a new vaccine coming out for influenza, which generally leads to herd immunity. That's an indirect protection from infectious disease that generally occurs when a large percentage of population has become immune to an infection. And that, that number is around 70%. So if the herd immunity of a population is around 70%, the basic reproduction number goes lower than one, and so transmission is reduced or stopped. And on top of that, you have antiviral drugs reducing the severity of disease for influenza. For SARS-CoV-2, unfortunately, we do not have any of those now. There is no prior immunization, so we have never encountered that virus. There is no vaccine. We possibly have to wait one to one and a half years for a vaccine to appear. And there is no medication proven to be effective until now. So we don't have any immunity and no approved way of decreasing severity of symptoms. Only through anecdotal experience and expertise from doctors in the hospitals and practical knowledge, clinical knowledge, they try to decrease the severity of symptoms. Okay, so I learned a lot of stuff here. Just to try to summarize, first of all, the presentation of the disease COVID-19 is somewhat similar to flu in terms of symptoms, but the virus is actually from the family of the viruses that produce the common cold. Exactly. 
And the reason it's very, very dangerous is because it can infect a lot of people at once. And then uh, if hospitals are overwhelmed, then the mortality rate could skyrocket even more, right? Yeah. And for the flu, because you get infected so often, you retain some uh, basic immunity for the flu virus, which you don't really have for SARS-CoV-2. Exactly. What makes a spreader a super spreader? I mean, do we know something about the profile of a person who can spread a virus in a more diligent way than other people? I mean, uh, do they have a higher concentration of the virus mm -hmm. and can spread it better than other people? Because this is quite a new thing. I think I've never encountered this piece of information thus far. Mm -hmm. I was just curious. Yeah, so again, for SARS-CoV-2, we do not have a lot of information. And even the super spreaders also occur with other infectious diseases, measles, for example. There is a lot of super spreaders where, I don't know, one person entered one emergency room and infected 30 other persons. And there is not, or at least I have not encountered a lot of papers, but I can imagine that it has something to, to do with immunity. And as you already said, the viral load, so the number of viruses found within such respiratory droplets, for example. But I, I cannot give you a definitive answer to that question. Okay, well, I think this is a good point to take a little break. And uh, as a transition to the second part of the discussion, we will debunk some myths. Debunk some myths. SARS-CoV-2, or as Trump calls it, the Kung flu, is a Chinese virus. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and uh, Trump does not have tiny hands. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's simply racist. The censorship of Chinese press is to blame for the proportions of the pandemic. Well, it seems it worked well, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Common one is that the virus was created in a lab. Um, well, this is not completely outside the realm of possibility. And there is a particular paper about the proximal origin of SARS-CoV-2 in which this was investigated. And the general conclusion is that the, the amount of resources that, that would be necessary to create a virus out of nothing is unimaginably high. So that is very improbable. Don't worry, only the elderly and the chronically ill get sick. Nope. Snorting cocaine kills the virus. This has to be my favorite one. <laughs> Well, I guess that's uh, uh, what somebody on cocaine would say. <laughs> yeah. This is something that Trump has repeated like several times, that warmer weather will kill the virus. Mm -hmm. I, I heard that one also. And what uh, Trump basically implies and supposes here is a sort of seasonality. That means that viruses, as the weather changes, are destroyed. And that's uh, true for particular viruses, maybe. And there is a certain seasonality for influenza viruses, for example. But I do not think that this will destroy the virus, but will rather reduce the rate of transmission. And that is because increased humidity, for example, due to increased temperatures, increased the droplet size, the respiratory droplet size, due to the accumulation of water. And these droplets are then dropping to the ground uh, faster. And that's one way I could explain myself why the rate of transmission could decrease. But it will not stop completely. What about UV lamps, worm baths, and hand dryers? Do they kill the virus? Okay, uh, 
Um, so UV radiation generally is approved in disaffection of some bacteria, but other than potentially irritating your skin, just leave it. And if you prefer warm baths over showering or a cold bath, then do it. That's a personal thing. But do not do it with the intention to kill the virus. The most efficient way still to destroy the virus is to wash your hands with soap. Drinking bleach kills the virus. Yeah, it's said uh, to also cure cancer, HIV, the flu and hypertension. Well, I think it also kills the host, so (laughs) (laughs) indirectly it kills the virus. (laughs) Drinking methanol kills the virus. So, yeah, if you think uh, losing A-sight protects you from the virus, then sure. Gargling salty water hinders the virus from spreading to the lower respiratory tract? I heard that one. That's that's a good one. Yes, uh, somebody told me that it actually creates an acidic environment. And well, that is true for some salts, but the usual table salts, there is no absolutely no pH change. And so it will not hinder the virus from anything. Don't do it with the intention to kill the virus. Collective meditation helps kill the virus. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, like it also helped canalizing a sort of collective consciousness to establish peace. (laughs) Drinking lots of liquids is essential for fighting COVID-19. Well, it's certainly good to drink water during that period, but I fear it will not help destroying the virus. Garlic, vitamin C, palinka or schnapps will slow down the disease. It will not, but garlic certainly is a good ingredient for cooking, though. A cure has been found. Uh, Up to this day, there is no empirical evidence for any treatment other than um, anecdotal and practical experience from doctors. You should rush to the pharmacy and buy chloroquine before it runs out. You should stay at home until pharmaceutical treatment is approved. Flu vaccines and antibiotics for pneumonia should work in most cases. Up to this day, and it's the 27th of March 2020, there is no single vaccine proven to be effective and also at the same time safe against SARS-CoV-2. This is a completely new virus and vaccines are to be developed now. There is some substances now that are entering or already entered clinical trials and we have to wait. Given shortages and price hikes in medicinal alcohol and sanitizers, you should DIY disinfectants. (laughs) If, If you're a chemist and have the knowledge to titrate alcohol, sure. This is definitely my favorite one. If you undergo treatment, your children will suffer from gender dysphoria. That's that's the absolutely most stupid thing I've heard. (laughs) So 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 you mean to say that it's not part of the trans agenda or something? (laughs) Yeah. Don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay.
So what is the situation now globally? So the situation is evident for everybody by accessing the John Hopkins COVID-19 case tracker website. As of today, the 27th of March, there is, let me check the website, 576,859 total confirmed cases. And I think this number is going to rise exponentially still. What groups are more at risk and why? Age groups, but also ethnic and professional groups. At the same time, it might be worth asking what factors contribute to it spreading the way it did amongst these categories. Mm -hmm. So if it's for the risk of infection, the families and relatives are at highest risks. This is the main way the virus spread until now. And then obviously, let's not forget all the workers right now that are in contact with uh, potentially infected people, taxi drivers, uh, drivers of public transport or sales assistants and healthcare workers, people working in the food supply chain. And uh, let's not forget a crucial point here, because I think this is easily forgotten with, with this imminent threat. Refugees, especially in overcrowded camps, are at high risk of being infected by this virus as well. Let's also not forget all the homeless people that can't just isolate right now, making it much harder due to the isolation to survive. Because obviously not a lot of people are on the streets anymore. And for sure, there is also a decrease in help for the people in need because self-organized grouping is restricted right now also. And people that live in, in care centers are also at risk. But I do not have any data on ethnicity, neither for risk of infection nor for severity of disease. When it comes to the likeliness of developing severe disease, it's clear that elderly people are mostly affected. And this trend is especially seen in Italy, where the population is generally older than in other parts of the world. It is argued that Italy has a high number of uh, mortality reported. And that's on one part due to the very fact that the population is older. And more importantly, that the number of cases is underestimated, as I said before, because tests are not performed on asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic persons anymore in Italy and other parts of the world. They are rather isolated direct. So if the amount of testing would increase and more people would be diagnosed, so would the mortality rate drop. And maybe also a small factor, which is debatable and not confirmed all over Italy, that the healthcare system and ICU beds are already saturated. That might be true for peripheral hospitals in a few other cities or in few of the cities of peripheral hospitals, but there is still some capacities, as I have read. So due to the saturation and uh, the fact that there is no adequate number of ICU beds, people cannot be treated adequately. Around 99% of the patients in Italy that died had pre-existing conditions, and the average age of patients that died in Italy was around 80 years. So elderly are mostly affected because they have a lot of comorbid diseases, so a lot of diseases at the same time, and with age, the immune function decreases. The health conditions that increase susceptibility are diseases such as uh, hypertension and COPD or uncontrolled diabetes and cardiovascular diseases, which most of the elderly have. Also cancer, liver diseases and smokers also. But I want to emphasize here that having diabetes does not mean you are more susceptible directly. You are more susceptible if your diabetes is not controlled through medication or insulin, because non-controlled diabetes would lead to secondary diseases such as hypertension and cardiovascular diseases and a decrease in immunity and so forth. Now some reports 
also showed that younger persons are affected. And this is true, but most of the cases are associated with prior existing diseases. There was, for example, a case of a young football trainer of 21 years in Spain who suddenly died. Well, he had undiagnosed leukemia prior to the infection. And uh, this case got rather hyped in the media and had that suggestive moment uh, within it that the virus is worse than we thought. But of course, it is wrong than we thought, but due to wrong reasoning in this case with the media. I do not want to deny that these cases exist, even though they are very unlikely. So uh, the percentage is very low to, to die here. Again, generally for young people, the risk is rather low, whereas beginning from the age of 50, the risk of dying to the disease increases markedly. The factors that contributed to its spreading the way it actually did amongst these categories are manifold. First of all, spread does not only occur within those groups. Everybody pertaining to a certain geographic area that is not remote from public happening is at risk of getting infected. So unless you're living in a forest within Romania or Germany or wherever you live where no person comes to visit you, then you're not at risk. But generally, the transmission of the virus is so fast because it has a rather high or not, so a, a basic reproduction number, and because it is infectious before symptoms appear. So before you even know you are infected, spreading already occurs. That might be why Lombardy and New York are so heavily affected, because they concentrate a big number of inhibitants in a small and compact area. Mm -hmm, certainly, yes. Okay, now let's move to basic norms of prevention. Like, what should one do? So we know that washing hands and using disinfectants might help, but should one disinfect every single piece of furniture every half an hour? Or how, should, how, how would you advise people to approach this thing? Should everybody wear masks and hand gloves? What other substances apart from alcohol could be used as disinfectants? And what happens with the products that one buys at the grocery store? Okay, so I think the only possible way for prevention, and that's currently the only possible way to deal with the situation, is a decrease in social interaction. I was talking about infectivity before symptoms appeared. So there is a paper that basically came out a few days ago, and there they stated that infectivity is occurring before symptoms appear. Two days before, I'm not sure about the numbers. Anyways, so it is not enough to diagnose and then isolate, as was with SARS-CoV from 2002. The trajectory in its basics is that of social isolation, and it's necessary to slow things down and to not overwhelm the healthcare system. That's from a standpoint of situation without critique. I think we will talk about critique later on. So if you are going to the supermarket, for example, do not blindly rely on surgical face masks, which are not even proven to be efficient for non-trained people. First of all, they might give you a false sense of protection. Unconsciously, you would still grab your face. And this is especially with face masks that sometimes may annoy or irritate. And then the second point is that the respiratory droplets are so small that they could just enter through the sides of the masks, for example. If the mask is fixed for quite a time, it might get moist and through that it loses its protective barrier, its filtrative function. Certainly for people knowing that they are infected, a face mask prevents from spreading the droplets. That's a way of preventing the spread of the disease. So if you know you are infected, 
then a face mask certainly is the way to go. But right now, this is not the case because you need to be isolated if infected. Face masks are needed for people working in the healthcare system. And right now there is a shortage of all the face masks, even people stealing some from the hospital. And there is empirical evidence that surgical masks, when used by professional personnel and a clinical setting where they encounter secretions daily, where they are dependent on such masks, this helps in reducing infectious transmission. The rest of the population also wants masks because they believe that they are generally protected through them. And then here the problem will be an economic one because as demand and market competition increases, so will the prices. And in the end, the hospitals will not be able to afford them anymore. So it would be okay if people in a population would wear masks that are made out of fabric, for example, or even a simple scarf in order to prevent the shortage in hospitals. So I want to emphasize, do not get a false sense of protection by face masks. Now, if contact with the outside world is necessary, then obviously hand washing and disinfection proved reliable. So I said in the beginning that the coronavirus is a virus with an envelope so that a solvent such as ethanol destroys the virus. Here, I want to emphasize again that the virus is inside a respiratory droplet. So mucus from the respiratory tract may serve as a protective barrier. So the best way to actually destroy the virus is through washing hands thoroughly with soap. If you go out into the supermarket and come in contact with things that might harbor the virus, and a lot of people still do groceries, obviously, and I assume that a bunch of them are asymptomatic, but harboring the virus, these droplets, due to gravity, can attach to inanimate objects. And a big part of spreading of SARS-CoV-2, as I told you when we compared influenza with SARS-CoV-2, occurs through contact spread, meaning that by touching a surface that has various particles on it, you transfer them to your hand and after that you touch your mouth and nose and eyes. Some studies suggest that SARS-CoV-2 survives from few hours to days on different surfaces. So anytime you think you come in contact with some surface from the supermarket, you should wash your hands before, for example, eating something or touching your face. Or you could disinfect the surfaces with at least 70% alcohol or diluted bleach solutions, for example. Now, from a personal perspective, try not to cough or sneeze in the direction of others and try to maintain distance. If possible, sneeze into the crook of the arm and keep your hands free from contamination. That's generally valid, not only for SARS-CoV-2. If you're outside, try to keep distance from people approximately um, two meters. As I said, those respiratory droplets have a certain mass and they are pulled downwards by gravity. But if you're sick anyways, stay at home. Right now, as the season for influenza is approaching its end, an infection with SARS-CoV-2 is more likely. And I want to emphasize that the symptomatology for this virus can range from no symptoms at all to just a tickling in the throat to diarrhea in the beginning, to fever, to difficulty breathing. And as I said, in the end, a lack of oxygen that leads to organ failure and death. So as soon as one has symptoms, do not assume due to its severity or because it feels like a normal flu, that it is unusual flu. It might not be. And right now we should assume that it's SARS-CoV-2. We should assume that everybody that has such symptoms is infected with SARS-CoV-2. I just have a question to clarify a bit. So, um, yeah, since washing hands is important, mm -hmm. right? Like a figure that's 
most heard, at least from what I heard, is that you should wash hands thoroughly roughly 20 seconds, right? So yes. that's the time scale we're, we're talking about. Yes, maybe even 30 seconds if you want, but just wash it thoroughly. So uh, in between your fingers, uh, your fingernails and so forth. You really should get accustomed to uh, hand washing technique. And I think we can link some things here to correctly and thoroughly uh, wash your hands. Yeah. And um, just as a side note from personal experience, uh, also buy some hydrating cream, which you apply after washing, because if you wash super often, your hands will get really dry. And then you'll have cuts on your hands and that just makes things worse. Yeah, that's also uh, valid for uh, especially disinfectants. If you want to make sure that you wash for 20 seconds, you can sing the chorus from the song Toxic by uh, Comrade Britney Spears. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and takes 20 seconds. Yeah, and maybe also uh, keep the nails as short as possible. Yeah, that's a good point, yes. Okay, now that we've discussed basic norms of prevention, and you've mentioned that when somebody has a symptom, they should suspect that they have the disease COVID-19. At what point should you ask for a test? Testing right now is uh, quite problematic because the number of tests available are limited throughout the world. So, as I said, some countries uh, started not to take into account the asymptomatic or even mildly symptomatic cases anymore. So this will obviously also influence the statistics in a non-representative way. What one should do is to call a local doctor or even a local hotline that is available on the governmental sites, I suppose, or from the hospitals. And then there will be professionals or people that uh, tell you what to do. In Romania, the government advises to call 112 for people that might have been contracted with the virus. And obviously, if you feel that you have difficulty breathing and it aggravates, then I would highly recommend to directly go to see a doctor or the hospital. But all of these procedures depend on the country you live in. So I cannot answer the question generally. I do not think that it's necessary to physically go to the hospital or to doctors for mild symptoms in the beginning, unless testing in the country is still a necessity even for mild symptoms. Though I think it's necessary to stay strictly isolated for 14 days. Again, it depends on the country you live in and how they handle the, the situation. Could we discuss the implication of the two strategies discussed so far in order to slow down the spread of the outbreak and their implications? I'm referring to social distancing and lockdown. I've noticed announcements, particularly on German television, presenting arguments for and against both strategies, while Washington Post recently released an article which aimed to demonstrate the feasibility of social distancing. Given the rampant escalation in Germany, which delayed lockdown much longer compared to Italy, France and Spain, what are your thoughts? Will this blow over or will we be in quarantine for the rest of our lives? <laughs> okay, so, so um, my thoughts generally are that we do not really know. Uh, we know for sure that a lockdown and social distancing will lead to a decrease in infections, but we do not know the extent. We do not know what impact that would have on the healthcare system and so forth. My thoughts are, again, that right now, most of the epidemiological data and knowledge about the virus is based on assumptions and theories that are shown to be either correct or wrong in retrospect only. Let's talk a little bit about that Imperial College of London paper that was published. It is the report number one. Uh, no, sorry, it's the report number nine. It's accessible on the Imperial College London website. 
here they basically modeled the impact of public health measures uh, on SARS-CoV-2 spread. And I broke it down a little bit for you. So this is a model study. So it's based on assumptions and mathematical formulas or models. So we have to be cautious here. They made assumptions as would be a median incubation time of five days or um, that infectiousness of a patient appears around 12 hours before symptoms start and that two-thirds of the cases are symptomatic. So one-third of the cases do not know that they have the virus or they assume they do not have the virus because it's so mild. And that's data from China, basically. Then they assume a 0.9% mortality rate where the asymptomatic infected persons are included and that there are not. So the basic reproduction number is 2.4 and that symptomatic individuals are 50% more infectious. Wait, can you resume a bit? I didn't fully understand what the assumptions were. The last one? Yeah, and the, the previous one. So that the basic reproduction number is at around 2.4. So again, the number of people infected by one person and that symptomatic individuals are 50% more infectious. Meaning that the, uh, their spread number is 50% higher? Or what does that mean, more infectious? Yes, basically the probability to infect another person. So th this has uh, influence on the basic reproduction number also. I want to emphasize that these are basically assumptions. So they can likely be wrong also. They can forge the conclusions. But it's, it's also not like that they are just random numbers. These epidemiologists talk to professionals, to doctors, to professors, to clinicians. So it's more or less anecdotal evidence from clinical practice. And again, it's, it's based on assumptions. And just because something in China proved to be effective does not mean that this also applies for Germany or Romania and other countries. Now, the object of inquiry is basically to model what impact public health measures might have. So that's a non-pharmaceutical intervention and how this might affect the course of the infectious spread. And here they generally talk about mitigation and suppression. Mitigation basically meaning an aim to slow down the epidemic spread and a reduction in peak healthcare demand while protecting those most at risk. And here the reproduction number goes near to one, but it will not go below. So that means that transmission is not completely stopped, but slowed down. And uh, they assume that public health policies are enforced for three months. Whereas for suppression, the aim here is to actually reverse the epidemic growth and to reduce the number of cases to low levels and to maintain this situation as long as, for example, vaccine might appear or medication that Uh, decrease the, the severity, of course, of disease uh, for the high-risk groups. So that basically means an uh, elimination of human-to-human -human transmission by decreasing the, rep the basic reproduction number below one. And they assume that these public health policies are enforced for five months or longer. So again, I want to emphasize that again and again. The problem with this is that this is a newly emergent virus. So we have yet to research and understand this virus and its ways of transmission and so forth. And we will only know in retrospect whether the measures were correct or not. So here we basically talk on the one hand about a method that is in accordance to the strategy brought forward by China and South Korea with all its possible social and economic costs, uh, which themselves might lead to healthcare associated issues. Whereas the other method will not completely protect those at risk from severe disease or death and uh, the resulting mortality might still be high. And let's talk a little bit about the results now. Mm, so they concluded that if no public health measure would be taken, 
Then after around three months, so in mid of June, the epidemic would have its peak with the most cases of fatalities. Numbers that basically means that in Great Britain, that's approximately 510,000 deaths over the course of the epidemic, without the inclusion of negative effects and strains on the health system and possible death by uh, burden to the healthcare system. And here they concluded that the critical care bed demand is 30 times greater than the maximum supply of beds. And when we talk about mitigation, again, this basically refers to reducing the impact of the epidemic. And the method here is by flattening the curve. So that's what mitigation is basically equivalent to flattening the curve. And this reduces overall incidence, so the number of cases of the disease and death. So these interventions need to remain in place for as much of the epidemic period as possible. But it is also important not to start with this matter too early because then not enough herd immunity has developed. And when relaxing the measures, the whole infective chain starts all over again. So here we are again in a very uncertain terrain in what to do. And the most effective measures for mitigation, they concluded, would be a combination of case isolation so that basically every symptomatic patient, every known case has to be isolated. Then home quarantine, which translates to the fact that families of patients with the virus have to be quarantined and social distancing of those most at risk, so over 70 years old. And this optimal mitigation scenario would still lead to an increase in eightfold higher demand for beds than there are beds in Great Britain. So this would still uh, overwhelm Great Britain and would coincide with the current situation in Italy. And uh, I, I forgot to mention that uh, this is uh, these models are ap applied on, on Great Britain and uh, USA, but uh, I will refer here to Great Britain only. If we talk about suppression, in order to reduce the uh, basic reproduction rate to below one, a combination of case isolation, social distancing of the entire population, and household quarantine or school and university closures are required. And they assume that these measures are again in place for five months. And this basically translates to a complete lockdown. And it's uh, estimated to have the largest effect on transmissions without overwhelming the healthcare system. So the only way in the study to prevent an overwhelming of the healthcare system is a total lockdown. Now, the problem with this is that in this period of five months of complete lockdown, no herd immunity will be built. And that after relaxing the complete lockdown, this would basically lead to a re-emergence of the virus. So then another epidemic later in the year is to be expected. So that's basically just a temporal shift into the winter of the epidemic. And in my opinion, this indeed would be useful if we would have medication or vaccines under them, which is very unlikely. So these researchers made a model that tackles exactly that problem of not being able to first sustain such a total lockdown for such a long period. And secondly, the fact that it's unlikely that until winter we will have vaccines or medications. And they planned or let's say they planned around with the concept that involves a total lockdown over a shorter period of time until the number of cases decline under a critical value. And here they took or they want to take number of cases within intensive care units. Uh, so because this is basically the easiest number to monitor. You have the patient in a bed and you can count it. After that, after the number of cases have declined under this critical value, they want to relax the measures again so that then everybody could go on with their regular life again. And then after a certain value of increase in patients with SARS-CoV-2 reach the ICUs again, an increase is noticed at the ICUs again, 
then the lockdown is introduced again. So it's a kind of a switching on and off method that would prove effective in their calculations. The only downside to that is that it would take two years, and that's probably not feasible for society. I would summarize what you just said and what the paper says like this. So the scenario with the milder measures, which is called in the paper mitigation, results in disaster because there are a large number of deaths and also the number of uh, emergency hospital beds is exceeded many times. Eight times, yes. So that might even explode in unforeseeable ways, the number of deaths. Exactly. And the other option is complete lockdown, which is called suppression in the paper. That leads to a huge reduction in deaths immediately. But if the lockdown is kept for smaller time than a vaccine would be developed, which is estimated at a year, a year and a half in the paper, then if you immediately loosen all the measures, because people have not formed some form of immunity to the disease, basically they predict that it will be like a, a rise again. Exactly. And the number of deaths you know, summing over this whole period would basically be the same mm -hmm. as without any measures. There have been some critiques to this paper. We will link the paper and the, the group that is critiquing uh, their results in the description of the episode. But basically, in the very short comment on this paper uh, from a group I don't remember from where, they said that, yeah, they agree with these findings from the Imperial College of London paper that you should actually implement some form of suppression. But they critique that uh, their uh, assumptions that lead to the finding that after suppression, that the number of cases would skyrocket again. They claim that uh, this paper does not take into consideration the fact that you could actually reduce to almost zero the, the existing cases all around the world. And one, that the virus might die out completely. Or two, that given a small number of cases and availability of tests, that you can actually immediately trace small outbreaks and then you can contain them. That would be one way. These are unrealistic assumptions that these people make in the Imperial College of London paper, that you could not contain small outbreaks after this. Mm -hmm. be be because now we are prepared for it. And my critique, which is not included either in the Imperial College of London paper, nor in the response to it, is that you actually have a lot of medicines now that are being tested. And basically, if one of them proves to be even you know mildly effective in reducing the number of patients with critical symptoms, mm -hmm. with critical presentation, then that would be a game changer because uh, if you could cut the mortality rate to something like close to the influenza, then you do not have such a crisis on your hands anymore. That's quite an important point you mentioned here because I'm also quite positive here because right now, as you said, there is a lot uh, going on in the scientific and also practical medical community. And what you just described is a sort of a, it's termed a repurposing of medications, of already existing medications, for example. Meaning that there is a trials going on right now in which a medication that, that is intentionally used for other diseases are used for treating COVID-19. And I also want to add something here. Um, first of all, maybe to criticize is that I don't know if we have the tools and the organizatory capacity, for example, in Romania. I mean, in South Korea, it was uh, possible, for example. But I'm not sure if we can really isolate and trace back all those cases if isolated re-emergence of the virus occurs again. And, and then I want to add that there is also antibody tests that are going to be introduced within the next weeks, from which a lot of valuable data can be extracted 
in the sense that with those antibody tests, you can detect people that were already infected with SARS-CoV-2. And this is not possible with the current tests available. And if they are positive on those antibody tests, then they are assumed to be immune. So these people can potentially start their normal lives again. And as you said, I want to emphasize again that this whole model is based or can be based on wrong assumptions. And that, as you said, such lockdowns do not necessarily have to lead to a resurgence of the pathogen. But we will only know in the end. And uh, we will actually need to wait until a better set of data is available. And I think Germany, for example, is doing a really good job at, at testing people and uh, collecting data right now. And um, But uh, for long term, uh, the only possible way I see for long term dealing with the situation is that there has to be, as you said, herd immunity. It has to be established. And this involves around, as I said before, 70% of the population, because then the basic reproduction number would be below one. And this uh, could be either possible by a lot of dead people within a short time or by vaccination or a combination of waiting for a vaccine and, as you said, this repurposing of medication, meaning that this medication might treat fatal symptomatology and then the vaccine for the majority to obtain herd immunity. So the ones that cannot get immunized are protected as well. And the next coronavirus might be <laughs> already lurking here. So extensive research is, is, uh, is needed. To sum up uh, at the moment, there are too many unknown points to basically predict with a high degree of effectiveness. Yes, if you want to synthesize it like this, you can do it, yes. If you had asked me a month or so ago what a super spreader was, I would have assumed at the time you were talking about some bloke or something, some guy man-spreading 180 degrees, taking up three chairs in the back of a bus at a minimum. Those were simpler days. So, we don't really have anything constructive to add here, so uh, we just thought we'd take a short break and tell our listeners the story of how this episode came to be. Besides, you know, the obvious, uh, there's a pandemic going on with all its tragic implications. It's actually quite funny. Uh, like a week ago or so, Yoni was saying that it would be really, really awesome if we could find someone who could talk about the current uh, coronavirus pandemic and who could also you know, talk about the virology and biology aspects, but also who could give leftist critique uh, of the economic aspects and stuff like this. And I was saying like, well, wait a minute, but <laughs> I know exactly just such a person. Uh, I talked to him yesterday. Uh, he's a friend uh, uh, from the local scene from Timisoara. So I asked Dennis, he accepted and you know, things fell into place. And this is the story of the episode. And the rest is, you know, as one might hope, history. Uh, we focused on finishing the episode, although we already had a few others that were nearly completed. Uh, you can say we're a bit like, uh, you know, hamsters or those hamsters or those people that stocked up on flour, yeast, and toilet paper way more than they will ever need. So, uh, well, let's just say that our storage room is uh, simply just full of incomplete episodes. <laughs> Hashtag Boomsday Preppers. Let's move to a part of the discussion which is a bit more political in nature about how 
capitalism generates or uh, at least amplifies pandemics about what responses of the governments has been to the crisis situation and how we can wrap our minds. We as leftists, how can we wrap our minds around the situation? Let's start this series of questions with asking, how do you think that mutual aid and social distancing can work together? How could we as leftist groups organize in our communities while at the same time practicing self-isolation and staying safe and keeping everyone safe? Because just going out and doing stuff uh, without reflecting on it could actually make things worse. Yeah. So mutual aid and social distancing is, uh, of course, important right now. And it obviously depends on us as people of a society to help those in need right now. But I cannot really give you an answer to that because that whole concept of self-organization as a whole broke apart, for example. There is no way to allow groups to come together at this moment. And our communities are not organized anymore. Groups and collectives that, that uh, help those that were in need the most and who especially are at this moment. Let's not only think about the risk groups that are affected by COVID-19 directly, but also about all the refugees living within big groups of people, as I mentioned, the unsheltered and homeless that cannot isolate themselves at all and which were taken care of by such self-organized groups. And it's easy for the bourgeois that does not worry because he or she is financially independent, living in a big house. And then there is a, a lot of people having psychological disorders, for example, for, for whom this experiment is going to be existentially dangerous. People of lower income jobs that just lost their grounds of existence, uh, unfortunately, and, and so forth. So my take on this is a negative one in that sense that we lose our autonomy right now and we compensate that with a false sense of solidarity, which is even reinforced by the state. Even the state is appealing for solidarity amongst people. But solidarity should not be to just compensate for what the state and capital, in its longing for maximization of profits, is to be blamed for. I mean, probably all of this could have been prevented. And right now, the problem is not the debts, but rather the collapse of the healthcare system, which was severely neglected financially by saving measures. And probably we will see major changes in the public health policy after all of this, or at least I hoped it. So that's currently the problem I have with this whole situation from my own leftist perspective. I mean, the entire governmental apparatus, all the people found within that governmental apparatus, even leftists, but also fascists or Democrats, uh, the people of the societies, whatever you want to name here, enter that moral stance of superiority and they think they do something of high magnitude. The governmental apparatus, the parliaments, authorities, the national institutes of health, they cry and appeal for mutual aid in order to prevent death of people in the risk groups. And it's capital to blame, not us. And from this perspective, one <laughs> or could argue in, in times of crisis, a whole society transforms towards ideals of the left in, in terms of social aid and social concerns in general. But in my opinion, solidarity is to be encountered outside of the state. Solidarity for me means to overcome power relations which we were born into, which we see are wrong, and when we are alone with them, lose the hope for overcoming, of, of, of the breaking apart of state and capital. And only as a collective we can overcome that. So solidarity is not found where the state reinforces it, where the middle class suddenly awakens, seeking a chance to, to sort of gain a momentum of personal fulfillment but where the good is not ordered or commanded, where it is basically internally known that, that that's as a, a Nietzschean ideal. 
And it's not where we enter the Judeo-Christian moral superiority blaming others that still go outside, but where reciprocal and natural responsibility and social cooperation is created due to authority, exploitation and obedience, with the longing to overcome it as a group, as a collective. And personally me, and I think also Nietzsche here, didn't lose that hope in healthy humanism. And I just want to warn that we should not get a false sense of solidarity here. And of course, we need to help each other and we need to help those in need. And in the end, we also need to help ourselves and by that others. That's that's my sort of take on, on this debate about solidarity. I have a bit of a follow-up to this. So at the end of the day, if we want to organize outside of our homes, especially if the lockdowns last for months on end, then we probably have to talk about, you know, actually taking conscious and informed risk. And if we are to go out at the end of the day, especially vulnerable groups will need to have, you know, food delivered to their homes. If they even have a home, right? As you mentioned, refugees or homeless people who will be severely affected by all of this. So at at some point, we will have to think about uh, leaving the house and be very conscious about how we do it. And who can take up this risk, right? Yeah. That's where you can leverage your privilege. Exactly. Yeah, I want to add that maybe one of the groups that could also be considered at risk are those in charge of producing our basic products. Exactly, the people in the food supply and uh, factory workers especially that uh, still have to work with a high number of people in a small room most of the time. Yeah, it's even, it's, it's also uh, almost incredible how these kind of loopholes are made for capital to continue on existing while people have to stop their lives completely. I mean, in Italy, I know that now, now at this stage that we are in 27th of March, after thousands of deaths, many thousands of deaths, only now did they stop workplaces where they do not produce essential goods. Here in Romania, I know my parents work in factories where they do alarms and car parts and stuff like this, which are not essential, and they are still working. I mean, it's incredible. Many people in a relatively small room or whatever, and it's incredible that these spaces are being made for capital somehow to continue to flow, even though people are confined to their houses. This is to me the ultimate, the, the space where capital's contradictions become yeah. plain to see. <laughs> and, and, and that contradictions especially would actually lead to probably the death of capitalism if it was not for the state to act as a mediator between capital and a proletariat here in this case. Yeah, and I actually have a follow-up on Robbie's example. Right in Italy, unions in Lombardy actually threatened to go on strike and their demands were more drastic measures against the coronavirus. I mean, it's tragic that it has to happen in such an absolutely awful context, but it still shows the power of unions to put a break on capital and the necessity of doing that. Okay, so let's delve a bit deeper into the response of governments. I also come to this as an anti-authoritarian leftist, but my position is very mixed and I will explain why. But first, I would like for you to give your take on this. For me, especially problematic is the fact that the army is present in the streets, at least in Romania and in many other countries, uh, with guns, which is unexplainable. I mean, (laughs) there's no logic to why soldiers have guns when they patrol on the streets. What is your take on government's uh, reaction to this crisis? And I would perhaps also ask that uh, 
if you know about difference between countries, you know, here in Romania, we pretty soon introduced curfews. I don't really think that the army's presence was necessary. I don't think we had conditions which were not under control, like in France, for example. I know that people were still gathering in public squares after the, the curfew was imposed. But here in Romania, I mean, there were individual people, but you didn't have public gatherings like that. So to me, it seems completely unjustified that the army was deployed. And in general, when the army is deployed, it you know, brings shivers up my spine. It's a particularly, the, this pandemic comes at a particularly worrying time. There's a lot of far-right sentiment, uh, you know, it's, it's growing in many countries. You have, like, I think Hungary was declared uh, an authoritarian republic or whatever. So the, f the only non-democracy in Europe, it was, like, declared by some institution, like, a few days ago or something like this. It's major, I mean, and all of the governmental measures come on this background. So my fear is that this will only give fuel to this right-wing sentiment. Yeah, I have similar thoughts. And, I, you know, I, I think it's it's that sort of uh, coming true, that profane epiphany of a wet dream for friends and advocates of totalitarian thought, kind of that addition of divine parts of Hitler's body, as if uh, Hitler's right eye is uh, 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 slowly and heavenly descending from the sky with a glimmer of light and, and heavenly music, uh, uh, kind of adding one part slowly on another. And uh, that's, that's certainly playing into their hands and thoughts right now for, for them to see a democratic state being able to lever out basic human rights within seconds, ending the support for refugees, for example, because the state is in sort of an emergency, closing the borders, then to increase the presence of surveillance, the presence of police in the streets, even military, as you said, in some countries. And since Wednesday, also in Romania, where people diagnosed with SARS-CoV-2 even are directly surveilled via their phones or cameras and to enforce authority and to simply pass laws without the notice of a parliament. And that list can be continued. And that's basically everything you would not want to see in a democratic state and which you would see in a totalitarian one. And this goes even further where right-wing parties and right-minded people endorse the racist thought of uh, refugees and, and foreigners as infectious carriers that, that infiltrate the countries, let alone that feeling of superiority against China and Chinese people, sort of that China, the ugly, the disgusting, filthy people that eat rats and bats and so forth. And all of this is certainly playing into their hands. And it's fertile, very fertile grounds for them. And for me, this is truthfully a concern when I hear that I have to carry around my personal ID to carry around a statement form where I have to declare where I want to go. I got anxious. And that's in Romania, by the way. And I mean, what's next? Are we really just a bunch of empty-headed individuals that just wander around so they need that authority? Or is this just a reflection of the imminent nature of the system we live in and which our lives are structured by? And I think it's the last, because as it seems in times of crisis, the societal change is governed and influenced by the ruling and administrative class, according to their delight. We are right now in a state of totalitarianism, where we are forbidden to group together where we are inhibited from even going outside, from basic human rights for ourselves and, and for others. 
And this is crucial. Again, I want to emphasize this. Who is helping and thinking about the homeless people right now? And if it wasn't mostly for self-organized groups that helped and that cannot help anymore at this moment, who is thinking about the refugees in, in Greece and who is thinking about other conflicts that, that used to be out there before Corona? I usually don't like to enter that whataboutism, but this just shows me that, that, that it's just a self-centered, isolated sphere this crisis and it's disconnected from the outside world and uh, even from conflicts within the countries basically an, an, an isolated sphere that surrounds one's apartment or house and we cannot do anything about it because we are in a state where we tend to obey and lose our autonomy right now where our freedom is, is undermined by the inherent necessity of state and capital to keep up working and exploitatory conditions and i'm afraid that our relationship towards the state and capital towards the rulers of the country, so to say, towards authorities, that this will stabilize and change as it is right now, towards obedience. And this is accepted by many and it's endorsed by and, and supported by many. I think if a going back to normal is occurring after that, and it probably will, then it is occurring with greater impotence towards authority and at the same time a greater obedience. And I personally fear that. I really fear that. And, and why is all that? Because all of this is possible and happening because there is a moral legitimization for it. There is no single way to do anything about it. We are impotent to protest against. Because if you want to say something against the measures, you are to be denounced as immoral, as irresponsible, and whatever this might mean uh, from others. And it's a little bit disturbing for me. This is exactly one of those moments that I never imagined. And like, even if I'm not a big fan of Fridays for Future and others, it's a moment where I wish that it would be possible to protest, where I'd wish to see the protest against the harrowing situation of refugees in Greece and all over the world. But right now, the climate debate, the situation of refugees in Greece, the war in Yemen and Libya, everything is simply forgotten. And I don't want that our societies enter that state of amnesia. And the symptom is, uh, symptom's name is corona, but the illness is termed capitalism, if, if you want to put it in this pathetic terms. I'm already sorry for saying this. <laughs> and, and, and I think that the absurdity is, is not to be overlooked, that it's forbidden for people to move freely, while others have to continue working in factories, as you said, and manufacturers and call centers and delivery jobs with a high number of people within those enclosed rooms. And, and we cannot even protest against that. And that is a dark outlook. I think there were prior wake-up calls, and I hope this was a specifically loud one. So I certainly do not think that this is justified, given the possible negative consequences for the society and individuals on their own out of this whole situation. And we will only know in retrospect whether the measures taken were successful and whether this has a negative impact. It's all speculation up until now. I just want to criticize the current situation we were thrown into, which we carry on our shoulders right now, and not the state, which should carry it, actually. And I want to say that, again, all of this could have been possible. No, let's say it could have been prevented if it wasn't for the interest of capital, of maximization of profits. I think your last point was very important because I also think that looking in retrospect to what the Minister of Health in Germany said in February... I do think that you're right, and it could have been prevented if the authorities in Europe wouldn't have downplayed the seriousness of the matter, because measures of containment put in place earlier on, probably, probably, who knows, this is contrafactual history, but probably could have helped 
more than continuing to lead a life in normality, let's say, and to maximize the profit and so on and so forth. But on the other hand, I would like to come back now to Romania and offer my point of view, which is not to say that I don't think your point of view is valid, but I would see this as a way of, I don't know, appealing to army and uh, p police in order to, to contain a virus as a desperate measure to hide how ill-prepared or unprepared the, the state is to face such a serious pandemic. Because to be quite frank, I can't imagine the Romanian healthcare system, both private and state healthcare system, to be prepared and or to take the right measures because they they lack the capacity of doing it properly. And what happened in Suchava shows it quite well, and what happened in Timisoara shows it also very well. And the protest of the doctors and assistants or uh, nurses in Teleorman also tends to point in this direction. So I think the authorities are overwhelmed of what is happening and they just try to take some actions. But obviously, in my opinion, they, they have no idea how to properly manage the real problem, which is the pandemic. So they try to take all these measures and come up with elaborate discourses, but basically they just to cover the fact that they're ill-prepared. Yeah. And I want to add here that the actual problem is not even the pandemic, but I think capitalism itself and that exact austerity measures I was talking about, because we could have been even better prepared if hospitals and public health wouldn't have went under such economic measures and cost-cutting measures and so forth. Even in Germany, even in Germany, I, I know yeah, that yeah. Robert Koch Institute came up with a scenario in 2013 and The German authorities, which obviously have more possibilities to tackle this problem, and they do have and act right now, did not take that into account. They just preferred to brush it off. Yeah. And we see a sort of desperateness that, and the hopelessness of what is happening with the state and the public health system with this exact indicator we were talking about and I was talking about. And that's exactly these totalitarian and authoritarian structures they established. That's pure hopelessness and sort of a, like an electrical shortcut, let's call it. Something that was not really thought about. Something where more experts should have been involved in the discussion and uh, so forth. Okay, let me just add my 50 bany on, the, <laughs> on the, the, the response of the government and on the issue of curfews and stuff. So on one part, as a person with anarchist affinities, it's deeply, deeply problematic for me to see the army manage citizens and stuff like this. For you to have to complete a form every time you leave your house, this is like, you know, as I said, this is, uh, uh, brings chills down my spine. But the other side, which needs to be emphasized, is that for me, when I hear someone saying that autonomy comes first before anything else, what I see here is privilege talking, because this disease affects, especially, you know, the mortality rate is large among elderly people, among people with disabilities and people with chronic illnesses. And uh, when you say that someone should not define or impose to me that I, I need to stay in my house, that it should be my choice ultimately, you know? 
I think this is also partly not legitimate because uh, you are conflicting with the rights of another social group. You are re reducing or barring the right to life and the right to health and the right to social services of elderly people, of disabled people, of chronically ill people. As a young person, you are increasing your risk only with a small amount if you go outside your home, but you are increasing the risk to these groups with quite a large amount. Mm -hmm. So I could say, yeah, sure, autonomy is important for me. I'm a white, young guy. Autonomy is something that I think about a lot. But at the same time, I'm a mildly disabled person and I feel a deep sense of belonging to the disabled community. Mm -hmm. And what I hear when I hear someone saying that autonomy comes before anything else, what I hear them saying is, my life is less valuable. The life of people from my community is less valuable than their autonomy. Because the trade-off is the risk of mortality, of cutting years, maybe decades of someone's life versus reducing or giving up your autonomy for two months. So I think that this needs to be emphasized. And I cannot tolerate, I cannot accept someone saying that my life is less valuable and especially not from comrades. So this is, this is just what I needed to say here. I think that's a very good point. It is indeed a good point. And by no means I try to um, somehow encourage people to, to go organize, to go outside and fight against the repressions or let's say the totalitarian structures that, that are imposed on us now. But still, I think I should be able to, to criticize what is happening right now and to give my outlook on how dark I think it is uh, for us right now. But your, your point is totally valid. Yeah, and also I agree with your points and what Andra said completely. I just, I think that every time when you talk about your autonomy, you need to also qualify it in this context. Mm -hmm. So this is the only thing that I'm saying. Just to quickly um, add to Robbie's point is like, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, like this autonomy stuff. Of course, you hear it from, you know, right-wing proprietarians all the time, whatever, their opinion doesn't matter, right? But it's doubly trouble when you hear it from, you know, like left libertarian people, comrades, and it's, you know, almost as if they haven't read Bakunin or something, uh, like the very most, like the lowest you can go in terms of, you know, theory. Um, because even there, there was a strong emphasis on community, like you, you have social responsibility, you know, freedom and autonomy comes with social responsibility. It's inextricable. It's not separable from it. And then um, just to uh, push Dennis's point further, since you mentioned that capitalism is actually the disease, totally agree with that. Because let's just imagine, right? Let's let's put on, let's do counterfactual history, and let's just imagine how easy it would have been to deal with this crisis if we had proper public housing, like to the extent of, you know, 80-90% of people having guaranteed housing. If we had four-hour workdays, mm -hmm. right? Uh, if medical systems would not have been completely eroded by neoliberalism for the past decades, like we're literally talking about decades here of assaults on public infrastructure. If you had, you know, extensive, or I guess to tie it right, right Robbie, to our uh, previous reading group, when we wrote the new human rights movement, where kind of like the author tried to impose this idea to present this idea of like a good measure, you know, of 
quote-unquote success for how we organize society would be public health in an extended sense, right? If, if we had proper healthcare services that reduce stress so that your immune system is better, if you weren't overworked, if you weren't completely alienated from yourself and others, how easier it would have been to deal with this crisis. Let alone, maybe it wouldn't have even emerged because right, that requires some structural changes that maybe uh, would have prevented um, this from happening in the first place. It's actually troubling that people don't see this and rather they tend in the opposite direction. They kind of espouse this environmentalist sentiment that, oh, look, um, this disease finally, you know, cures <laughs> the plight that is humanity on the earth. Um, and it's like this, you know, Malthusian, eco-fascist mm -hmm. outlook that, you know, humans are the problems. Where through these five points, or however many I listed previously, it's clear that it's fucking capitalism. Humans have nothing to do with this. It's capital. Capital destroys the earth, right? And you can easily see that the slowdown of the capitalist mode of production is instantly visible in you. You look at maps of CO2 emissions in, in northern Italy, in Seattle, in, in other places with industry and usually high economic activity, and they drop drastically. It is capital that is the problem. Okay, I, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, yes. I, just, I just really, really hate capital. Yes, uh, me too. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, basically in conclusion, it's uh, capitalism that is the real virus, right? Yes, you are right. Capitalism is an imminent threat, as is Corona or COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2. Just, just that the severity of capitalism is of, of manifold higher. The, the problem that it has is, again, it's, it's relentless longing for maximization of profits under any circumstances. And I want to emphasize, again, if there wouldn't be a legislation and working law and so forth, the, the, the results would be catastrophic and probably results in the death of capitalism, as the working force would be drained of their energy. Here, again, the, the state functions as a, as a mediator between proletariat and capital, and by this keeps capitalism alive. The analogy of the virus is uh, accurate in this case, even though I would consider a virus more or less natural coincidental thing, whereas I wouldn't assert it to the historical progression of capitalism. It is as if two, let's assert both sort of a consciousness, to two friends uh, found themselves. Because I think this virus comes in rather handy for capitalism right now, because its own downfall can be regarded now as having been caused by an external threat, an external cause, named SARS-CoV-2, the image of an enemy. We can obviously argue about that neo-Malthusian notion of overpopulation and, and overconsumption, or let's call it natural selection. <laughs> I mean, obviously, that is quite an eco-fascist way of looking at this, inspired from a sort of social Darwinism, which in the end even starts with the wrong premise, and that is that something like overconsumption would appear in a capitalist system. I think never have we produced more and more in abundance, and never have we had such a material wealth uh, so that probably double the world can be fed if the resources are allocated uniformly. I mean, obviously, from a capitalist stance where ecological system is depleted and exploited and drained anyways, I'm worried about how this is going to end up for Brazil, for example, where exactly this notion is taking place. So arguing from that standpoint as if capitalism or as if in capitalism, a reduction in population would inherently lead to sort of a sustainability that is not anti-humanitarian. That's, I think it's illusional. And we see now by these, so to speak, accompanying drastic consequences for the economic system, 
and from within the capitalist system itself as a negation of the logic of capitalism, so to say, of its longings, so maximization of profits, in the sense that factories and manufactories, they are slowed or shut down, right? And I feel really comfortable with that direct, evident results, actually seeing that the only way to change this imminent threat is to decrease production. Well, I mean, of course, in the end, to abolish capital itself. <laughs> yeah, capital definitely can't be led to self-destruct because uh, it's so deeply tied to literally everything. Capital has colonized all peoples of the earth. It has colonized nature. It has commodified all peoples and all of nature to the point that if it self-destructs, it will destroy everything. So we kind of have to consciously excise it at this point, unfortunately. Like maybe the pandemic puts some external pressure on it, but it can't be left undirected, so to speak. And I want to add something because that point you just made, that uh, commodification of nature is actually also something that Adorno talked about in connection to Hegel. Let's think about nature a little bit. We, we kind of think of nature as, as if it's that which has not been modified through human activity, basically. So that this nature arises from unblemished corners and cracks of the world. But this, in its essence, is pure fiction. In, in this sense, nature doesn't exist anymore. And Hegel was talking about this a little bit in his philosophy of nature. And then Adorno also talked about this a little bit. And he countered Hegel, basically, or he assorted Hegel sort of, an, that Hegel would be a philosopher of, of identity. And Adorno basically made inversion where he, Adorno, would be the philosopher of non-identity, which basically means that nature exists exactly there where it is uh, suppressed and dominated by man. And for example, there is a nice picture. If you imagine a street and out of this street, a crack occurs due to a plant, for example, that's exactly where to search for nature. I, I just wanted to, to add that. Yeah, so this is actually quite a discussion worth on itself um, because... For sure, yeah. We, we, we kind of, unfortunately, like I think it's a quite a large failure of the left and of the ecology movement in particular, that it kind of didn't emphasize the point that, as you said, there is no such thing as, you know, that pure untouched nature. Mm -hmm. uh, like capital has put its, its claws into it. So it's like when we talk about, you know, large scale factory farming or large scale monocrop farming, like a pest or a virus that gets produced in those conditions is not, you know, quote-unquote natural. It is socially produced, and it's obvious that it's socially produced. Okay, not obvious. Th that, that was my initial point. But that's a very important thing to point out, because if you don't constantly reinforce the narrative that it's natural, then you can kind of realize that, wait a minute, we can actually do something about this. Yeah, and this is quite also a Hegelian point in the sense that uh, actually when you see, for example, a tree, you already see its final product, a desk, for example, or you should see it. <laughs> you should assert that to a tree. So I think, uh, yeah, I think maybe we should plan to include this in the follow-up episode to this, which we were talking about to do, to include the discussion about the interconnectedness of nature and society, or in Marxist language, first nature and second nature, right? And uh, I also feel that what is also warranted to delve a bit deeper and more rigorously into the way that capitalism uh, sets the stage, uh, creates the conditions which make such a pandemic appear and especially, you know, amplify 
and become fully global. I, I, I really, really feel the need to delve into this more deeply. Now we just, you know, vented a bit and shat on <laughs> capitalism. It felt good, but I, I really think we should, we should follow this up with a rigorous discussion of yeah. how exactly, how capitalism creates the conditions for the appearance and the spread of such a pandemic. Yeah. If you guys agree, let's wrap up this discussion now with a generic question. What should we learn from the pandemic at all possible levels, both systemic and individual? Maybe each of us to give a take on this. Dennis, maybe you start if you want. Yeah, sure. I can uh, start. So I think that we see clearly here the inherent nature, or let's actually call it the inherent logic, because it's not natural, as we just discussed, of how we are geared and interlocked in an utterly disturbing system. It's the time where we can gain clarity about our political and philosophical and societal and, and human situation. We have to escape from that notion of being part of a natural order where we enter that narrative of, oh, that's just how it is. It's part of our fate of, of nature. That's what Marx would term mystification of societal relations, where basically the immanent structures of capitalism and the state are reproduced by society itself because they're blind towards it. And that's actually what Marx meant in the preface of his book, A Contribution to the Critique of Political Economy, where he states that it is not the consciousness of men that determines their being, but on the contrary, their social being that determines their consciousness. So that's kind of that shift from idealism to materialism, basically. And we should get conscious about that fact that we reproduce all of the system ourselves. And I think this escape can happen right now. And I think this whole situation actually leads to a demystification of this natural logic or can lead to if there is people criticizing what is happening. So on the one hand, we are inhibited in our basic rights and basic life is discontinued. So culture and cultural life is basically cut off. Art and music and operas or, or festivals and museums and or access to libraries and universities and schools and whatever you want to name here are, are shut down from one second to the other. But at the same time, the state does everything to maintain production and industries and banks potentially risking the death of people. But that's something capital never cared about as long as workforce as a commodity is available. And a friend of mine just told me that she has to work in a bakery in the weekends, which in its essence would not be that controversial because it's essential food supply, but people are still allowed to sit there and eat and drink together. And I, I don't know for me, something does not fit here. That exact moment that does not fit here is simply the fact that the interests of major corporations are balanced with the interests of the humans pertaining to the society. Just that the former interests weigh more than social freedom in this case. And I think now is the time to realize that capital and the state uh, got undressed and its most basic logic is naked now and it's ready to be attacked. And as a synthesis uh, to, to this whole discussion, I, I have a quote from Nietzsche from one of his books, Ecce Homo. Here, now I'm sorry to all my religious friends, I still love you. The quote is as follows. After coming into contact with a religious man, I always feel I must wash my hands. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good metaphor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we could like paraphrase that and say, whenever I come in contact with, uh, with a liberal, I have to wash my hands. Yeah. <laughs> Well, for me, it's very clear, and not only from this pandemic, but uh, it makes it very clear that capitalism has infiltrated every part of the globe. We are all interconnected. The flows of capital are global. And I think that us as anti-authoritarians need to think uh, 
how we can also create structures and act on this scale. Because we are very good at trying things out in the cracks of the system, you know. But I am at a point in my political becoming where it is very, very important to me to think, and not only in like general broad strokes, but in really concrete terms, how we can construct large-scale networks that would run and govern a society, for example, and also deal with a pandemic like this one. Although I would believe that in a non-neoliberal capitalist system, fewer pandemics would appear, but still, I mean, these global issues would nonetheless appear. Climate change, for example, is a reality, is a current reality. We can mitigate it a bit, but it will still be a reality. Any kind of anti-authoritarian system needs to tackle these global issues. At this moment in history, any kind of anti-authoritarian thinking needs to engage with these global issues. I'm not a theorist myself, so I'll give it a shot. And it, it might sound a bit controversial, but in my point of view, capitalism is not a single problem and there are many facets that should also be taken into account. I think our perspective on what value is and where we place value is also rather problematic. And this is uh, transparent in how we value the work of, of the workers or uh, of the people who are working in agriculture and are paid. I, I just can't qualify it because it's obscene. But on the other hand, I also think that all in all, a gender perspective might be effective in this discussion because the problem is capitalism is fueled by myths of meritocracy, which are inherently also entangled with patriarchy and manly values and so on and so forth, while solidarity and empathy are devalued because they're more or less considered to be associated with womanly things. So, of course, in the end, they don't produce palpable value. And they can't be quantified. But uh, I do think that, uh, especially in our context, one can see how important it is to stick to humanist values and to try to counteract this idea of meritocracy and profit and productivity. Because in the end, the society should work for the people, for each and every member of the society and not for amoral instances such as economy or, I mean, they should serve the community and not vice versa. People should not work to boost the economy, but the boost of the economy should serve the general society. Probably this is not very articulate, but that's my stance. Full-heartedly agree. I just wanted to add to your point, Andra, right now, that that's what we actually see right now also. I mean, most of the public health system is based on the workforce of female members of our society. Yeah, and especially healthcare workers. Perhaps doctors are mostly male, but the ones who are doing a lot of the work are nurses and yes. other, both medical and non-medical staff. Exactly. So um, I think we can uh, all agree capitalism makes literally everything worse. <laughs> uh, seems like kind of a, a long-running theme in this podcast <laughs> exactly and um, for the first time you know uh, being lazy kind of pays off right you're socially responsible by being lazy <laughs> yeah exactly for for the first time in uh, many decades uh, being lazy is is the way to go it's our time to shine <laughs> exactly <laughs>
Well, thanks a lot, Dennis. This has been a fantastic discussion, and I hope to to make some more episodes together. You know, keep in touch. Yeah, I, I thank you too. It was it was a nice experience, and it, it was my first podcast. This was a long and dense episode from which we've learned a lot. We found out that this virus belongs to the family that includes uh, the ones that produce the common cold and has its likely origins in the population of bats. Compared to influenza virus, SARS-CoV-2 spreads faster and is 20, almost 20 times more deadly. As opposed to the viruses that produced other recent pandemics, this one can be transmitted before symptoms appear, which makes it particularly difficult to contain. The risk groups are elderly, people with disabilities and people with chronic illnesses. All the model scenarios are somber. The only solution leading to the relatively low numbers of deaths being heightened social distancing in anticipation of development of a vaccine or a medication that will curtail severe symptoms. The virus is transmitted through the air by inhaling and through surfaces by touching and transferring the virus to the nose, mouth or eyes. It can be destroyed by the action of detergent, soap and disinfectants or of solvent rubbing alcohol or any solution containing above 70% ethanol. On surfaces, it can survive for a few hours up to 2-3 days. Surgical masks can be helpful but could also be counterproductive by creating a false sense of safety. They are important especially for the prevention of contaminating others when the person wearing it is infected, especially if they are pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic. The use of alternative masks made from any kind of cloth is encouraged for preventing shortages in hospitals. Uh, we have also discussed the measures that governments of different countries have imposed. In, uh, in many places, a state of emergency has been decreed, allowing authorities to take decisions without consulting the parliament and, and allowing them to curtail basic rights of citizens. The state of affairs with the compulsory nature of a, you know, of having to uh, go with a completed form for any movement outside the home, the withholding of information about the pandemic and the presence of the army in the streets is one in pretty much the literal sense of the world, word dystopian. Uh, particularly problematic is the fact that there is no theoretical or practical space from which one could critique or protest the current situation. And the fear is that after the pandemic will pass, our relationship to authorities will normalize, you know, towards uh, one will shift towards one characterized by a higher degree of obedience. Beyond all measures taken by governments, the pressing issues remain how this problem can be approached from an anti-authoritarian perspective. When the choice of some people to practice or not physical distancing leads to a curtailing of the right to life, to healthcare, to social services of many other vulnerable groups. And finally, we touched upon the complex issues of how capitalism, through its colonizing and reshaping of its, in its own image of nature and the 
severe underfinancing and destruction of the healthcare system and of the uh, health workers themselves and of workers in general created the suitable, nay, you can say almost perfect conditions for such a pandemic to appear and then spread. Thank you for tuning in. If you have questions, critiques, suggestions, whatever, do not hesitate to leave a comment on Facebook or on any other platform that we put the episode on and or con- contact us on our email address. Until next time, stay safe, compañeros and compañeras. So I'll add my quick take. Um, <sighs> okay, never mind. Uh, it's fine. Um, uh, uh, this will be edited out. Historical revisionist. Exactly. No, I I actually kind of lost my train of thought for it. I'm tired.